Welcome to this Investec Specialist Bank podcast. The views expressed are those of the contributors at the time of publication and do not necessarily represent the views of the firm and should not be taken as advice or recommendation. Investec Specialist Bank, a division of Investec Bank Limited, is a registered credit provider. This is Investec in Conversation, a podcast brought to you by your award-winning international private bank and wealth manager. I'm Karen Johnston, and today I am fortunate enough to have Howard Bihar with us in the studio. Howard led Starbucks domestic business as president of North America, and he became the founding president of Starbucks International, opening the very first store outside of North America in Japan. During his tenure, he participated in the growth of the company from only 28 stores to over 15,000 globally. He served on the Starbucks board of directors for 12 years before retiring. Howard now serves on the board of several for-profit and non-profit organizations and is committed to the development and education of our future leaders and has been a long-time advocate of the servant leadership model. Howard, welcome to the studio. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Howard, your, your career spans many, many organizations, but the one we're talking about today is Starbucks. Tell us a little bit about your career there at Starbucks. Well, I spent 21 years at Starbucks, and I started in 1989 when there were 28 stores. And it was this little tiny coffee company, and I went there because I thought I was going to escape corporate life. And within about three months, I was right back in corporate life. And uh, it was an incredible opportunity. I didn't realize how big it would become at the time. Nobody could have predicted what was going to happen to this little coffee company, but um never one day did i well during my time at starbucks was i unhappy about being there it fit me like one of those gloves that you can see the wrinkles in your hands it was an emotional fit it was an intellectual fit and it allowed me to put into motion all the things that i believed in about leadership and so uh you know i look back at that career with just tremendous uh uh, love and caring about the place and I and I'm still in stores every day and still still you know hopefully trying to influence a little bit even though I've been retired for a while so you were the president of, of Starbucks for 12 years I was yeah I was I was on the board for 12 years yeah. and I was president of Starbucks International and president of Starbucks North America I was a founding president of Starbucks International and you grew this the the organization from 28 stores to over 15,000 correct a lot of stores. Huh? That's a lot of stores. It was a, a lot, lot of, of coffee. Stores. It was a lot of coffee. How do you like your coffee? Uh, I drink a triple tall Americano every day when I get up in the morning. That's how I start. And then I usually have a second one. By that time, I'm flying. So, you know, my energy is right up there. But that's how I start. No cream, no sugar, just black just coffee. Straight up. Straight up. So from an organization that you took from these 28 stores that had obviously quite a, um, I would say, entrenched uh, culture, a sort of very family-owned culture, to scale it to over 15,000, how do you manage that scalability? How did you get that cultural fit across so many stores, and especially in international markets? Well, you know, uh, people grow the business. I have this uh, belief. It's a little equation. Uh, my responsibility was to grow the organization, the organization uh, grows the people, the people grow the business. And um, and that's what we try to do. We try to hire great people. We try to give them room to be themselves and to contribute to the organization. But me as an executive of the organization, I didn't do the work. You know, what I what I did do is try to hold held myself accountable and what leadership did is hold themselves accountable to the values of the organization. We had to knock down hurdles that got in the way of our people and then encourage them to grow the business and to make it happen. But that's really really all you can do. I used to always say that my uh, day job was the people, my night job was the business. 
so people form part of the way you live your life and that's definitely um, a subject that's, that has informed your books and your yeah. leadership principles. What are the other five? Well, they, it's 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 the six P's. The first one is purpose greater than myself. Mm-hmm. Everything I do in life has to have a purpose greater than myself. And I believe that I'm here to serve other people, and that's my greater purpose. And so the second P is if you have a purpose greater than yourself, then you ought to be passionate about it. You ought to scream it from the highest mountaintops, and you should hold yourself accountable to it. And so it should get you up in the morning. It should pop you out of bed. And then the third P is persistence. Uh, anything worth accomplishing, anything worth having a greater purpose and uh, being passionate about it takes persistence to achieve it because there's lots of rocks in the river a lot of rocks you put there yourselves but sometimes there's rocks that are just there by nature's or other people put in your way and so in order to accomplish anything great in life you have to be persistent the fourth p is patience uh, patience is not easy, and I'm particularly not a very patient person. I didn't learn patience in, until my grandchildren taught me, and your grandchildren will always teach you patience. But, you know, the most important person you're going to have to be patient with is yourself. Not everything comes in the time frames that we want them to come, you know, and... Uh, if as long as you're persistent about things, you have to be willing to sometimes wait and for things to happen. You know, you can push them along, but sometimes things just kind of take their own time, and you have to be willing to have the patience to wait for them. Uh, the fifth P is performance. Performance matters in this world, and we don't like to be measured, but we're being measured every day. Our significant others are measuring us, our spouses are measuring us, our children are measuring us, our bosses are measuring us. But, but the truth of the matter is that if you're really healthy, you're measuring yourself. You know, before you go to bed at night, you ought to look in the mirror and you say, how did I do today against who I am as a person, what I say my values are, or what I said I was going to accomplish? And and you got to be willing to do that. And then the sixth P is the most important P is it's about people. There's nothing that any of us will do in our lives that isn't about serving another human being. I don't care if you're the chairman of a bank or if you're a teller in a bank or if you're an investment banker or if you're a barista or... Or, you know, you sell wine for a living, or you're a doctor. It's about serving people, and that's all there is. So the sixth one is about people. If I can take the direction into the leadership and the discussions that you have around the world and these, and these talks that you give, and, and you speak about something called the servant leadership model. Yes. Tell us a little bit about that. Well, the, the concept of servant leadership came from a man named Robert Greenleaf, who, who uh, during the 40s and 1940s and 1950s, was the head of organizational development at the largest company in the world at that time, American Telephone and Telegraph, AT&T. And when he retired, he looked back at his career, and he was trying to figure out what, what made really great leaders. What, as he looked back, who, the leaders that really stood out, why were they great? And he, and he came to the conclusion that the great leaders were the ones that intrinsically understood that their role as a leader was to serve their own people, was to serve their people. Not be served by their people, but serve their people. And the reason he came to that conclusion is because those organizations survived and, and blossomed even after their leader left. But the leaders that believed that they were there to be served, their organizations caved in on themselves after the leader left. And so he, he coined the term servant leadership, and, and he's kind of driven that. And he, was, he and, and Peter Drucker were close friends, and, and Peter kind of felt the same thing, only, only used different words. But that at the end of the day, leaders' primary responsibility is to serve people. And in, in the context of serving people, the people get what they need out of out of the organization they are able to achieve their own personal goals and so doing they help achieve the goals of the organization and the two together is what make great organizations individuals getting out 
out of out of their organizations what they want and by so doing achieving the organization's goals and you know servant leadership and conscious capitalism in today's world are really what I think is starting to drive business I love that conscious capitalism and um, what does it mean well conscious capitalism means just that you're conscious of the effect that you have on the people in your organization and about the communities of which you're serving that you see the world as a whole you're not just seeing see because uh, Capitalism, you know, has always been thought of as being about maximizing profits. Capitalism is about earning money. But the truth of the matter is, is that capitalism really should be about serving community, about serving people. And it, it's not about maximizing profits, it's about optimizing profits. And that means that our, our role is, is to not only make money, we have to make a profit in order to continue on with our organizations. But it can't be the defining force, it can't be the defining value. And so the defining value, I believe, is to serve communities. And, uh, and to serve people in the organizations. And so conscious capitalism is just that, is the recognition that we have a much broader role than making money. And you know, the way that I put it is, imagine if you had 75% unemployment in South Africa. You'd, you, you would have anarchy, wouldn't you? If we had 25% unemployment in the United States, we'd have anarchy. So, you know, businesses have a responsibility to create jobs so people can express their creativity, can earn a good living, can grow as individuals, and can contribute to the organization. And that's what makes the world go around. You know, just because if business is making a lot of profit and that's all they care about is their profit, that's not serving the world. If only everyone thought the way you did. <laughs> well, I, I believe. I mean, I'm a true believer. And I've seen it work. Look, I came out of a company that, you know, we had to make money. It wasn't. We understood that. Our, our eighth guiding principle is we recognize that profitability is essential to our future growth and success. It didn't say profitability is our number one objective. The first, the first guiding principle is we treat each other with respect and dignity. Because at the end of the day, that's what matters. Do you get up in the morning? I mean, I feel sorry for a person that gets up in the morning every day and says, boy, I can hardly wait to go out and make money today, right? I mean, would you say that inside your family? Boy, I can hardly wait till my wife goes out and makes money, or I hope my children, you know, just go out and make a lot of money. I mean, no. What you want, you you want your, you, you know, you want your significant other or spouse to, to uh, have be uh, happy about their your marriage or your relationship. You want your kids to grow as individuals. That should be the same thing that happens in organizations that we work for, whether they're for profit or not for profit. Doesn't make any difference. But how don't you think having values and having these. Isn't it a bit old-fashioned? Yeah, well, values are not new. You know, I mean, uh, every religion has a set of values. You know, in Judaism, there's the Ten Commandments, you know, and each religion has its own. And uh, and so that's a set of values. And unfortunately, we don't always live up to those values. We put them in the wall or in the shelf or we forget about them. But values are meant to be lived. Values are not just words. They're actions and decisions that we take. And people think they're just words. They're not. You have to define what they mean to you and then live your life according to those. Now, that doesn't mean you, you're perfect. No human being is perfect. We make lots of mistakes. We screw up all the time. You know, we're not kind to people. We, you know, and organizations are the same way. But we need to have a place that we can go back to, whether it's, a, you know, it's in, on the shelf or wherever you put it, that we can always remind ourselves of why we're here. And we always have to be doing that. I mean, it should be the beginning and the end of our conversations of why we're here. But and that's why you got to write this stuff down and you try to live by it. And you've written down those values that's yes. and, and who you are. And yes. you've lived by that. You've got a personal mission statement? I do. Tell us. It goes like this. Uh, every day I want to nurture and inspire the human spirit. 
beginning with myself first and then for others. And the reason I say self first is what I've learned after living as long as I've lived, that if you're not okay with you emotionally and physically, it's very difficult to serve another human being because all your own stuff gets in the way. And none of us are perfect. You know, we have, you know, we all have problem days, troubled days. We all have, you know, things that don't go our way. And, and maybe we get angry once in a while. We don't live up to those things. It's not my point of perfect human beings. My point is, is always having coming back to this place that reminds us of who we're trying to be. It's kind of like the North Star. Are we ever going to reach that North Star? No. But we, we're always driving towards it. And it, it's out there in our vision somewhere. And remember, that's where we're going. And so that's what I try to do. What were the big life lessons that got you to, to where you are today with this philosophy? I mean, surely you must have stumbled across some of those rocks we spoke about earlier. Yeah, well, you know, one significant one was I, when I was in my mid-20s, I worked for an organization uh, and for a leader that didn't believe that I could be me. Mm. And the unfortunate part was that I didn't know who me was. And I had to do the work to figure out who I was. And that's when I started writing my values down and I wrote my mission. And that journey put me into serious depression. And, and I had to decide who I was going to be and whether I was going to live according to other people's rules or other people's thoughts about me or if I was going to live according to what I thought about me. And I made a decision to live about my life about who I thought I was. And, you know, you pay a price for that sometimes. And that's okay. I always say to people that report on me, I said, you have to be willing to bet your job every day. If, if you're fearful of losing your job because of who you are, you're in the wrong place. You know, leaders need to help people be who they are in the context of the organization. You know, and not everybody fits every organization, nor should they. So you have to find the place that fits your values. And you have to be conscious about that, you know. Uh, you're not just taking jobs. You know, you spend a lot of time at work. You better be aligned with the values of the organization. Your values better be aligned. If they're not, you better either you better find another place to work. Howard, you must have many stories from your career at Starbucks. Tell us one or two of them. Well, I think one of the ones uh, or uh, stories that's actually two stories in one that affected me the most was when I first started at Starbucks. I was there two months, and I, I got a call from one of our store managers named Jim. We'll call him Little Jim, and because he was short, but. Uh, he called me up and he said, I'd like to come see you and Howard Schultz. Well, I was an executive, you know, and I thought, well, I can I can take care of this problem. Howard doesn't need to get involved. And so I said, so, Jim, what is it? What can I do for you? And maybe I can handle it instead of Howard Schultz, too. And he said, no. I said, I really need to see Howard, and I'd like to see you as well. And so I set up an appointment date for him, and Jim came in that day, and I went and greeted him at the, at the lobby of the company, and we brought him back, and we went into Howard's office, and Howard was on the phone, and we sat down a little love seat and I was sitting right next to Jim and and so we were having small talk while Howard was on the phone then Howard got off the phone and we had a little bit more small talk about the business and so then I said to Jim I said you know being an a, I'm an A type person and I said to Jim so what what can we help you with Jim and I, I wish I wouldn't have done that so quickly because Jim looked at Howard and he and he and he looked at me and he said well I need to tell you something I am dying I'm dying of AIDS and now this was 1989. This was very early on, you know, in the AIDS epidemic. And, and I have to admit, you know, as Jim's sitting next to me and he said, I'm dying of AIDS, I, I kind of naturally, I thought, maybe I better move over because at that time we didn't know, was it a virus? What was it? Mm. You know, what was AIDS? And, but we knew people were dying. And, and, uh, and so Howard said, well, how long do you have a limit? Jim said, well, I have maybe six to 12 months to live. And 
And Howard looked at him and he said, uh, "What? So what can we do for you?" And, he, and Jim said, "Well, I'd like to work as long as I can work, you know, because I need to make a living." And and Howard just looked at him and said, "Absolutely, you can work as long as you can work." Now remember, we were in a food service business, right? And here it was AIDS, mm. and Howard didn't mm. even blink. He just said, "You can work as long as you want to work." And then Howard asked him a question. He said, "So when you can't work, how are you going to support yourself?" And Jim said, well, there's agencies that are being developed now to give help to people with AIDS. And Howard said, absolutely not. He said, Jim, as long as you live, we will pay you your full salary. Okay, we will support you until you die. And then Howard said, and how are you going to pay for your health care? Because there's going to be lots of costs associated with it and after you leave. And Jim said, well, again, there's lots of agencies that are being developed and hospice and you know stuff that hopefully I'll be able to get some help. And Howard said the same thing. No, Jim. Okay, we will pay all your health costs until you pass away. Now, you know, this was a company that was tiny. It was losing money. We didn't have the money to spend. But Howard didn't even blink. Mm. Right. And what kind of message do you think that sent to me early on in the company? And what kind of message did you think that sent to the rest of the company that we would do anything to take care of another human being? We weren't thinking about its cost. We're thinking about what we needed to do because we cared about Jim as a human being. And, you know, caring only is, you know, when you care, it's easy to say I care, but it's hard to care when it costs you something. Yeah. Right, either emotionally or economically or whatever, and so here we were saying we're going to take care of Jim. So that was, you know, that was a story that I never forgot, and it informed how I led that organization the rest of the time that I was at the organization. I never thought once about whether we could afford to spend the money or not. I just did what I thought was right, and it let other people do the same thing. And that's we built this organization on caring and on values. So the second one was kind of a, a different story about Big Jim and. Big Jim lived across the street. He lived in Santa Monica, California. He lived across the street from one of our stores in a nursing home. And he was in his late 70s or early 80s. And every day, Jim would come into our store about 2 o'clock in the afternoon, and he'd order a drip coffee, a short drip coffee, which was our cheapest drink, and he'd order a blueberry muffin. And they would always save a blueberry muffin for him in the afternoon because usually we'd sold out, but they always had one for Jim. And, you know, they was, he, Jim would sit there for an hour, drink his coffee, and eat his muffin, and talk to the baristas and the manager and other people that were in the store and it was his time for communication and being part of community and so the you know the the baristas and Jim they would tease each other they would talk about life anything every time they, the baristas would give Jim his cup or his bag with a muffin it they would write something on it like uh, he, Jim was a big football American football fan and, and, and Pittsburgh had a team called the Steelers and so the, sometimes they'd write hey Jim the Steelers suck you know or, <laughs> or, 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 or Jim you need a haircut or, or Jim we love you Jim you know, we, you know you're a great guy or whatever it was a personal message to Jim either teasing him or caring about him and so they developed a relationship over time it wasn't it wasn't it wasn't uh, an employee serving a customer it was one human being caring about another human being going both ways so one day two o'clock comes no gym three o'clock comes no gym four o'clock comes no gym and so one of the baristas says let me take his cup of coffee and his muffin across the street to the nursing home so he walked into the nursing home and went up to the counter and the person that was at the counter said and he asked the woman where's Jim and a tear came down her eye and 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 she said Jim passed away in the night and so the barista went back to the 
store, and it was sad because Jim was important to them. It was, you know, it was was like family. Mm. And so a day later, one of Jim's children came into the store and went up to the store manager and asked if all the people in the store would be, could come to Jim's funeral. And that wasn't easy for that store manager to do. He'd find a replacement for himself or herself, I don't remember if it was a he or she, and uh, for all the baristas, but but they did, and they all showed up at the funeral the next day. And as they walked into the nursing home, here were three eight-foot round tables, right at the front of the nursing home, and on the table was it was filled with all the paper bags and the cups with all the little notes no that every barista had written. You know, in life, it's the little things that count. Mm. Who would have ever known that those things were so important to Jim that he would kept every one of them? Right. Obviously, he was looking at them all the time and what they meant to him. And maybe they kept him alive longer than he might have lived. And, you know, it's the little things that count in life. And, you know, that was what we think is a little thing. You know, we walk by people in the hallway and we don't say hello because their heads down, you know, or 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 when we're leaving home in the morning, you know, we're almost out the door and we say, love you, honey, you know, from the other end of the condo or the apartment or the house, instead of going up to your spouse or significant and looking them in the face and giving them a hug and saying, I love you, I'll see you tonight. You know, it's the little things that matter. And so, um, you know, Big Jim was a story about the little things and how much, how important they are. And Little Jim was a story about sometimes the big things, mm. but it was about caring about people. Howard, thank you so much for your time. It's been an absolute pleasure having you in the studio. This is Karen Johnson. You've been listening to Investec. Howard is the ex-president of Starbucks. He grew the organization from 28 stores to over 15,000 stores globally. He's also the author of It's Not About the Coffee, Lessons on Leadership from a Life at Starbucks and the Magic Cup. been listening to Investec in Conversation, a podcast brought to you by your award-winning international private bank and wealth manager.